listener production. Wayne Swass is one of the most successful football players in AFL history. His highly publicised struggle with mental health issues has taught us that things are not always as they seem. Wayne says, having honest and open conversations shows people that it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to be emotional. In this intimate conversation, we talk about shining a light on mental health, the dark night of the soul, and why asking for help is so important. My narrative at that point was toxic. No self-worth, no self-confidence, no value, no positive contribution to family, friends, the world. And I might as well end my life because there's nothing good about me. So I had to reframe all of that and it took an enormous amount of hard work, but I'm so grateful that I made a decision to go and ask for help because when you ask for help, there's so much good help out there. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Wayne Swass was born in New Zealand and raised in Warrnambool, Western Victoria. Wayne's passion for mental health has led him to create the charity Pucker Up, a social enterprise and podcast focusing on emotional well-being and suicide prevention. Wayne is a highly intelligent visionary whose dedication to his work in the mental health space is inspiring. I started by asking Wayne, when did your battle with mental health begin? Well, officially it began 9th of August 1993, but when I look back, it probably started to impact my life around about the age of 18. I can go back to very early childhood memories where if mum and dad were upset, then I was a bad kid. And if they were happy, I was a good kid. And that tendency and some of those characteristics helped me become a very good football player. But at the same time, those characteristics led me to have unrealistic and unachievable expectations of myself. And and what I've learned as I've got older is that it's unrealistic and it's unfair to expect that you're either going to be a complete success or you're a failure. I contributed to what I've gone through Mm. because my expectations were unrealistic. You have black and you have white, but Mm. then there's this varying shades of grey and that's life. So I've, I've had to learn that that's a better expectation and that's a truer reflection of life and that's how I try to live my life. But I can remember in my first five years of starting my career with North Melbourne Footy Club that if I wasn't named the best player in the paper every weekend, then I was nothing more than a failure. Is that something you imposed on yourself? Yeah, and that was the expectation that I had of myself. So I was looking for all of this external validation to try and fulfil myself internally that I was worthy and I was deserving. And unfortunately, I carried that through my entire football career. And that made the challenge all the more harder because, again, I wasn't meeting the expectations that I was placing on myself. And when I look back on my career, I'm very thankful. I had a, I had a great career and you know I achieved quite a lot of success, but I still saw myself as a failure in a lot of areas. So what would happen in those weeks that you wouldn't be named the best player? I would absolutely punish myself on the training track. Absolutely punish myself. 
I had to prove to myself, but more importantly, prove to my coaches and my teammates that I was a good player and that I was deserving of their support and their acknowledgement. And then in amongst all of that, you know, I was drinking excessively. So it was a, it was a perfect recipe for somebody to sabotage their self-esteem and self-confidence over a number of years, which I did and I did really well. And so who was around you at that time? Well, I moved away when I was 17 from my family to pursue my career. And if I look back, that was a significant void that I never filled. I was around all of my teammates and all of my coaches. And I don't want that to be interpreted as though there's any responsibility directed at anybody else because ultimately it was my responsibility. But I didn't I didn't have the checks and balances that helped me identify that there's an issue here. But the other thing that I've learned is that I had the environment, the education and the opportunities to become a better football player, Mm. which really helped me deal with stress in only one area of my life, and that was on a football ground. But I didn't have the emotional intelligence, the maturity, the confidence and the skills to identify that stress had started to impact my life and then begin to acknowledge it for what it was and go, okay, I need to go and do something about this. I had these overwhelming periods of sadness that would just come in like a mist off the sea. And for no rhyme or reason, I had no understanding why. I didn't know where it came from, but it would just sit. And it would sit with me for a couple of days or sometimes a week or whatever it might be. And then it would just move off. And I just started to get used to the fact, well, that's just life. It just happens. But what I didn't realise then that I do realise now that no, there were things that were happening in my life that I didn't have an ability to identify, to understand, but more importantly, do something about. Did you speak to anyone at the time, like your parents, about the fact that you would feel sad for long periods? No, because that's not what men do. My life is my book. One of the things that I've spent considerable time reflecting on, but also advocating, is men and young men are conditioned from an early age to behave a certain way and discouraged from behaving another way. And what I mean by that is we're expected to be strong, stoic, resilient, tough, hardworking, and unemotional. And to answer your question, the reason why I didn't talk to my mum and dad or anybody, I didn't know how to. But how do I feel? How do I think? And then how do I communicate what I'm thinking and feeling if I'm struggling? I didn't have the skill set. I'd never been taught. I'd never been exposed to that environment. And this is why I'm so passionate about the work that I now do. There's no legislation and there's no book and there's no law that says a male and female cannot be emotionally connected. Yet women are supported, not always, but more often to be emotionally connected. But we live in a world that is more accepting of girls and women for being emotional for crying, for talking, for listening. Well, that's got to change. We need to create environments where men and boys can come into those conversations as well. And the reason I say that is, unfortunately, on average, we lose eight people a day to suicide in Australia. Yeah, that's that's massive. It's got to change. It's got to change. So that's a long-winded answer, but I just didn't have the skill set, Sarah, or the confidence to talk to anybody about what I was going through. And so when did things change for you? It changed out of necessity. I vividly recall this this particular day in my life, and that was I was driving home from training. On the surface, I'm really, really starting to establish myself as a football player, and I'm driving home, and it's about nine o'clock, and it's dark outside, and I'm halfway home, and I'm at a set of traffic lights, and I 
wait for the lights to go green and I burst out crying. I had no reason, no understanding why this had happened. I got home and I sat in my car for an hour and a half. I did that for two weeks. It got so frightening that I refused to go to bed during that two-week period with Rachel at the same time. And the only time I would allow myself to hop in bed with her was once I was convinced that she was asleep. Because if I hopped into bed while she was awake, I would cry. And the fear of that was paralyzing. So I did everything I could to make sure she didn't see me like that. But at the end of that two-week period, she knew. I was going to say, surely she knew knew something. She's a woman. Exactly. (laughs) You're a lot smarter than what we give you credit for. A hundred percent. That's not going to surprise you or any of the ladies that listen to this particular (laughs) podcast. And ladies, that's not a sexist (laughs) comment, right? Because you have this thing called intuition. Yeah. You're connected at a deeper level in more areas, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. You just have that, right? Yeah. I've learned to appreciate that. There's, she, a lot, there's a quite a few men out there that are also the same. Yeah, correct. But they're outliers. It's not consistently mm. across the male demographic. But Rach said to me at the end of the two-week period, she sat me down and she goes, something's not right. I don't know what it is. But what we're going to do tomorrow, we're going to see the doctor. And he diagnosed me with depression. And that was the beginning of a journey that I've been on for 25 years. And so what happened when he diagnosed you with depression? What was going through your head? I didn't believe it because at that time, my uneducated view of mental health conditions was weak people or people with character flaws, not an AFL football player. I didn't believe it. I didn't want to believe it. And I actually said in the consultation with Harry and Rach, I said, give me six months off from football. I'll go away and deal with it and I'll come back. What I was really saying, I didn't realise it at the time, but now with the benefit of what I've gone through, Mm. what I was really saying to Harry was, I don't want to deal with this. I don't know how to deal with this. I want to run away from it. What did Harry say? Harry has an amazing empathetic capacity. So he made it very clear that no, we're going to keep training and we're going to keep playing. And together we'll find a way to work our way through the challenges. But the following day, everything in my physical and emotional universe was screaming at me when I was driving to training this day, do not go. You cannot front up to training because the moment you walk in the door, the secret's out. My teammates, my coaches, the staff will know. This was the story that I was telling myself. I managed to go in there, got changed, walked into Harry's room, closed the door, and I burst out crying. I said, mate, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. Let me go home. And I did this religiously every training session and game for the next four years. And in his nurturing gentle way. He said, no, we're in this together and we're going to find a way to get through this today. And the fear of my teammates and my coaches seeing me cry was, I felt career ending. And I just remember looking for Harry and and I, I saw Harry and he was in the middle of the ground. And I thought to myself, how am I going to get Harry's attention without bringing attention to Dennis? I managed to do that. We went over to an area of the ground where uh, other players and coaches weren't there. And he came over, he goes, mate, what's the matter? And I burst out crying. I said, Harry, I can't do this. I don't want to do it. Let me go home. Just let me go home. And I I was begging him. And he turned to me and I'll never forget it. And he just looked me in the face and, and he just said, do you trust me? And I turned to him and I said, what the hell has this got to do with what I'm going through now? He goes, do you trust me? I said, of course I do. He goes, then trust me that I know what I'm doing with your health. And from that moment, when he said that to me, whilst I'd lost all hope and value of myself, 
I always thought of him. And he was the person as well as my fiance that I didn't want to let down. And there were many times where I thought about ending my life as the option, but I kept coming back to what he said that day and I thought I can't let him down. And I'm grateful for it. So when did you decide to tell the players and your coach? I never did. You never did? No, I hid it. I've had a lot of time to look at this. I played 282 league games. I was diagnosed after my 97th game of football. And I played the remainder of my football career, never telling a single teammate, never telling a single coach, and never telling anyone else outside of my family apart from my wife. What did you think would happen to you if you said something? I'd lose respect, I'd lose those relationships, and I'd lose opportunities. So I hit it. That must have been hard for your wife and Harry. I think it was incredibly hard for Rachel. And I'm not proud of it. You know, I speak all over the country, and I've been doing this for 15 years, but... My biggest regret during that period was that I never gave one opportunity to go and talk to a professional or someone about how it was impacting her because I've got no doubt that she's seen the very best and she's seen the absolute worst of the worst with regards to what I've gone through and I wish I could go back and correct that but I can't. So how did she deal with you at the time knowing that you were suicidal and having no experience in this area? I think in fairness, she dealt with it as best she could given the limited understanding of it. The turning point for part of my recovery was the realisation that Rach was beginning to educate herself about what I was living through. That gave me confidence that she was genuinely invested in my recovery. I mean, ultimately it's on me. I've got to do the work. I've got to take responsibility. I've got to own my health and my well-being. But when you know that you've got not only a doctor, but you've got a partner who is now starting to read up mm. and educate themselves about these conditions and how do they impact the person, the confidence that that gave me was significant. I've got another ally. I've got two allies. And no matter how bad this gets, I've got two key people that are there. They're fronting up every day and they're helping me. And I've no doubt in my mind, I pushed both of these key people, but I'm so thankful that these two people never gave up on me. I'm alive and I'm alive because of what they've done. Did you educate yourself at the time on no. the mental health issues? No, I, I was a borderline alcoholic for six years. Smoke. Even after you'd been diagnosed with yep. depression yep. and anxiety was, and obsessive compulsive? Yep. So I, through Harry, prescribed medication, took it for two weeks, stopped taking it because I thought I could think my way through a mental health condition. If there's anyone listening who's going through that, you can't. Listen to the doctors. Mm. They're professionals. They have the experience and the expertise. They're doing it for a very particular reason. But I saw it as weakness. You know, for six years, on the rare occasions that I took medication, I hid it from Rachel. She didn't realise that Harry had given you medication. She knew the first time yeah. because she was in the, in the consultation when he diagnosed me. But beyond that, no. I never told her when I was taking it. I never let her see me take it. I never let her see the medication because of the shame and the embarrassment that I had. So I drank alcohol as a way of self-medicating. Smoke. Did she know that you were drinking alcohol? Yeah. Surely yeah. she would have realised that's yeah. probably not a good mix. Uh, yeah, but how do you tell someone who's not prepared to listen? Mm. Rach could have told me. My dad told me. Harry told me, maybe he's back a bit. No, because I used alcohol as a way of um, numbing what I had to deal with. If you get to a point where you are so drunk, your brain does not function, you stop thinking about what you're thinking about. So I used alcohol, I used marijuana, and I used anything else that I could get my hands on during that six-year period. How did you manage to play football? I'm not, I'm not saying that this, was, this is the thing that you should do. The reason why I punished myself 
on the training track during the week was to make myself feel better for how worthless I felt off the back of a big weekend of drinking. And I drank every weekend during that six-year period, not to enjoy the experience of drinking alcohol, not to enjoy the company of other people, to completely wipe myself out because the shame I had about living with mental health conditions, to fit in, and a flawed way of thinking, I felt that that was helping me cope with the situations. What I've come to learn is that alcohol is a depressant. It's a legalised drug which is acceptable by the community. But alcohol causes just as much, if not more, damage than methamphetamines, than heroin, marijuana. It's a drug and it does not help. The paradox of that experience for me was that I knew that it was not helping, yet I didn't have the ability to stop it. Yet every time I drank and got drunk and then the next day I'd have to wake up, the self-loathing that I felt towards myself because I'd drunk was overwhelming. So it was just this cocktail of things, decisions, conditions that I was living with that put me in a, a situation where I was suicidal for four years of my playing career. So when did everything change? The pivot moment in my life was I moved to Sydney And in June of 1999, almost six years after being diagnosed, I've won best and fairest at North Melbourne. I'm a premiership player at North Melbourne. I moved to Sydney. Um, I'm about to win another best and fairest in 1999, all Australian for for the only time in 1999. So on the surface, I'm achieving everything, but I foolishly thought that if I left North, I'd leave my conditions there. I'd go to Sydney, new environment, new people, new relationships, happy days. It didn't work that way. So at the age of 29, I had an epiphany during a training session. It genuinely was an epiphany, and that was this realisation that I've done nothing to help myself. Six years after being diagnosed, I've refused to accept it. I've refused to acknowledge it. I've refused to ask for help. I've done everything I could in my power to sabotage myself. And I realised at that moment during that training session, I've got to do something. I made a decision I wish I had made six years earlier. I finished training, walked in to the change rooms, uh, walked into the doctor's rooms. Uh, head doctor at Sydney now is Tom Cross. Uh, closed the door, sat down, burst out crying and said, Tom, I'm, I'm sick and this is what I'm living with and I need help. Can you help me? And the first words he said, yes, and I will. And from that conversation, he put me in contact with an amazing lady psychiatrist in Sydney. Six years after diagnosis, I had to then invest four and a half years of my life working for the first three years every week with her to understand depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, how these conditions impacted my life, what decisions were, were, were I making at the time that was compounding what I was living with, and effectively, how do I begin to develop an internal vocabulary and skill set that allows me to change the narrative? Because my narrative at that point was toxic no self-worth, no self-confidence, no value, no positive contribution to family, friends, the world. And I might as well end my life because there's nothing good about me. So I had to reframe all of that and it took an enormous amount of hard work, but I'm so grateful that I made a decision to go and ask for help because when you ask for help, there's so much good help out there. And then after that, when did you decide to go public? Um, I retired in 2002 and in October of 2005, we, my wife and I, Rachel and I were living back in Melbourne. The clarity with pivotal moments or days in my life is crystal clear. And this is another one of those examples. I came home one day, I was working in the media, I was beginning to establish myself in, in that industry again. 
And Rach asked me, how are you? And this is 12 years after I was diagnosed. And I said, I'm really tired. She goes, what do you mean? I said, I'm tired of the lie. She goes, explain that. I said, I've been lying to everybody by you and three professionals about what I've lived with. I've got nothing left in my tank. She goes, good, I've been waiting for this. I said, what does that mean? She goes, we're going to get the family together. I said, no, we're not. No, can't do that. I hadn't even talked to my dad. Why hadn't you? How does a man talk to his dad about emotions and mental health conditions when you've never had a single conversation about emotions and feelings and vulnerabilities to your dad in your life Mm. by the age of 35 and a half? I love him. He's a great person. We have these conversations now. But the fear of me telling my dad what I went through, once people knew that I had mental health conditions, they'd see me as weak, they'd judge me, and they wouldn't want to be a part of my life. You felt that about your own dad? Yep. I was convinced. I never tested it. I just made all of these Mm. assumptions. If we were friends or family, if you knew, then you'd judge me, you'd see me as weak, and you wouldn't have anything to do with me. So what I did for 12 years was I invested everything into making sure that I protected the things that I thought were more important, but that was at a great personal cost. So a week after this this initial conversation with Rach, we had a family gathering, um, and I've played in grand finals and big games of footy. I've never been more scared ever than going into this meeting and I was convinced that I'd lose everything and everyone that was in that conversation bar, Rachel. I was absolutely convinced that there was nothing sure that was going to happen, that they were all going to get up and they're going to walk out and that was it, it's all over. And it was a two and a half hour, really emotional, very raw, very honest conversation and everything and everyone that I was convinced would leave was in the room. And I realised, I realised at that moment, that the people that really care about you and genuinely love and support you, they may not completely understand it, but they'll be in your corner. And how was your dad, the man that you'd never had any of these conversations with? Uh, He found it really confronting and really tough because I was honest. I was really honest with some of the stuff that I'd gone through and I know because of things that he said during that conversation, he was having trouble processing it, but then he was having trouble sort of contextualising it and then understanding it. But three weeks later, he rang me on a Sunday morning and it was, I don't know, some ridiculous hour in the morning. He goes, you watching Channel 9? I said, Dad, I'm in bed. I go, what's on Channel 9? He goes, Rowena Wallace is on there talking about her experiences with mental health. It's bloody good. You should get up and watch it. I got off the phone and I realised, I said, you know what? He may not completely understand it, but in three short weeks, he's invested into trying to understand this so that he can help support me. And I'm... I'm, I'm I love him, but I'm really proud of him because I know for a fact that he has helped people that he has worked with since we had that conversation, who have been stressed, living with mental health conditions. He's been supportive. He's been encouraging. He's proactively begun to have conversations with people that he's worked with. He's helped them get help. Mm. So we make these wild assumptions without testing whether or not it's true or not. Again, I can't take the 12 years back. Jeez, I wish I had to talk to them so much earlier because from the date of diagnosis until that family meeting, there was not a single time where I was in the company of family and friends. It was one big lie to protect what I thought was more important. And how did that feel? Draining, fake, fraud, failure. I mean, the hardest thing is cracking a smile when you're not happy. I did it well. It is so draining, Sarah. Why do I choose to be very honest with what I've gone through for two reasons. If I'm not honest about how I am and I'm investing my effort and energy into pretending, that's not helping me. 
So I choose not to do that anymore. And secondly, I hope that through sharing what I've gone through, other people that listen to this understand that that is not worth that. If people choose to judge you differently in a negative light because you're living with legitimate medical conditions, so be it. You can't control it. What you can control is whether or not you accept that judgment from people because of the condition you're living with. My advice to people is do not waste a single second pretending if you're not happy, healthy, and well. Don't think you've got to make other people feel that you're happy and healthy and well. You need to focus that on yourself. That might sound selfish, but that's what you need to do. So what do you do every day now? I know battling mental health, there are different procedures they have in place and things that they do every day to ensure that their mind's in the right space. What kind of things do you do? It's taken me 25 years. I don't think it's perfect, but I've got an internal checklist and a framework that I know gives me the best opportunity to be healthy and well as often as possible. I want to preface that by saying last year I had two incredibly difficult bouts of anxiety, really challenging personally. Why do you think? I've never been a big drinker, but I've learned that alcohol is a depressant and alcohol interrupts my ability to sleep. So what I do is I've made a conscious decision I don't need alcohol in my life. That allows me to prioritise sleep because if I don't get quality sleep, then I'm tired, I'm agitated. And if I've got those two ingredients, invariably I get this overwhelming sense of sadness. And that is the um, naked flame to me that, no, you're getting very close to another bout of anxiety. So I've developed this level of self-awareness. I can identify it and I can sit back and go, okay, I need to pause here for a moment. What's going on in my life, professionally and personally? What can I identify that could be contributing? And then I make those decisions to start to rebalance what I need to in my life. And I, I manage my way through that. Do you watch your thoughts? Yeah. I think we all need to. Yeah. The anxiety is the thing that I, I manage. Anxiety I, I have, is I being have, worried about the future. Yeah, worry about the future, worried about the past. No amount of guilt can change the past. I have to work my way through that. And no amount of stress about the future is going to change well, the future it. because it hasn't arrived. Yeah. So the only thing we can have any control over, if we can, is this moment right here. That's it. So developing an ability that allows us to be present in the moment is really important. So the anxiety is something that I manage ongoing. The thing that causes me the most distress is the obsessive compulsive disorder. I have had an ongoing challenge and journey with these intrusive thoughts about self-harm or harming other people. I've never hurt a single person in my Mm. life, except on a football field, but that's in a controlled environment. But I've had these disturbing thoughts of, you know, harming other people that I love or harming complete strangers. And it's a real confronting experience because a thought will come... We have, on average, 70,000 thoughts a day. Yeah. It's extraordinary. I know. What comes in and out our brains. Half of it's dribble. Yeah, well, (laughs) vast majority of it's dribble, right? But I can have one intrusive thought about harming myself or another person. And what I have to challenge myself and try to not default to is what I did for a long period of time. Pick the phone up, ring match. I've just had a thought about hurting somebody. Do you think it's real? Am I going to do it? So when those thoughts come in, I've got to be really vigilant to make sure, no, if I feed into the thought, 
the thought starts to have more meaning, which then means it starts to replay itself in my mind. If I pick the phone up and I ring Rachel, I'm validating the thought. I'm giving more power, more Mm. importance, more significance to that thought process. We have good and bad thoughts every single day. I've never harmed or hurt another person ever, yet I've grappled with those intrusive thoughts for a long time and they bother me the most. And so... Do you speak to someone about that? Well, it's interesting because I sat down with Harry. I said, I'd like you to find somebody that I can go and talk to because I think that I'd like to do some more work. And tell me, did kids change you? Did they change me? Yes. It helped shift my view of my life from the point of view that it was very self-centred. It's about what you do and your relationship and that's about it. But when you have kids, they're dependent on you. So their safety, their health, their development, maturity is all reliant on you. But I can also say, I don't know of anything else that is more challenging and harder than being a parent. Oh, for sure. And there was a period where I felt tremendous guilt because I felt responsible that our girls were dealing with some mental health conditions. And I think as well, having kids, it's a reflection on yourself. It's like constantly showing you a mirror and you don't want to make the mistakes that maybe were made when you were young. That's an interesting thing that you, you raise, Sarah, because I'm trying to help reframe the narrative around this topic of masculinity. And this has never been more important because what we actually do is we are shaming people into disconnecting emotionally. And when people are under emotional stress, if we don't foster and encourage people to have the full suite of emotions, that when they're under emotional stress, they'll do what I did, nothing. We get into crisis. And when we get into crisis, one of the outcomes of people being in crisis is tragically, they take their life. So I've taken my life lessons and I have never, nor will I ever say to my son, who's 12, any of those things that were said to me. He's getting to an interesting age. Yet I make it a priority to proactively have conversations with him and I alone about emotions, feelings, talking, and this skill, which is crying. I talk to him every week or every second week because I want him to understand that these are things, these are conversations that boys and girls with their mum and dad can and should be talking Mm. about. Because if I can foster that, connection with him so that he understands that it's just normal. I can be happy. I can be frustrated. I can be angry. I can be sad and I can cry. And that's normal for a boy that at some point when life wants to sit him on his bum, he knows he can talk, he can cry, he can ask for help, and he can be supported and loved unconditionally. That's the greatest opportunity and responsibility I have to all of my kids, but especially my son, because I want him to be emotionally connected. And how did everything start with Pucker Up? How did you go from not saying a word to anyone about anything, telling a couple of people, to then having this amazing, amazing company that you run that does, you know, absolutely beautiful things? Well, thank you. Pucker Up is a reincarnation of a charity that I created in 2006. So I went public in 2006. Mm. There's a part of me that just wants to help other people. So we created a not-for-profit. We delivered preventative education programs in secondary schools here in Melbourne for five years. And unfortunately, the funding model in Australia is really prohibitive. So we closed that down, continued working in the media. And two and a half years ago, I decided to do this crazy cycling challenge, which is called Everesting. So that is riding continuously up and down the same climb or hill or mountain to ride the equivalent of Mount Everest. So it took me 24 hours. It was nonstop. And during that 24-hour experience, my old chairman, who's been a mentor of mine, came out twice during that 24-hour period and saw what 
I was willing to do physically and emotionally for myself. Off the back of achieving the challenge, his company invested into creating Pucker Up. He's now the chairman again. I wake up every day committed to this passionately because I have an opportunity to have a positive impact in another person's life. And it's not about me, Sarah, but when you get messages like I got last week from a man who I've never met thanking me and quote unquote, I'm alive because of you. I don't know what else I can do that can be so satisfying and rewarding that the work of your organisation and the commitment to this really complex confronting issue is not only changing lives, but it's saving lives. Mm. Footy was great, but this is incredible. There's a beautiful quote by one of my favourite poets called Rumi, and it says, the wound is the place where the light enters you. Have you heard that? Yep. It reminds me of you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Do you pray? I don't pray, but I talk to my angels every day. I talk to my angels every day I leave the house to go for a ride to keep my family safe, and then I talk to my angels to keep me safe. Uh, If you had said that I'd be doing that 25 years ago, 15, 10, 5 years ago, I would have said no way. But that's what I believe. That's my connection, whatever that may be. People can make up their own minds. So so I guess to answer your question, in a way I do. But what I've come to appreciate and respect now is every time I talk to my angels or the universe and I ask them for something, and it may not be something big. Something magical happens. It manifests. It's there. I'm not saying, can I have a million dollars? But I talk to them and, and it's like things happen which I sit back and go, that's not a coincidence. Yeah. And I think that that's the way that life plays out. I'm a better person for the experiences that I've gone through, even though sometimes those experiences were life-threatening. What would you say to people who are suffering from a mental health issue? First thing that I would say to anybody who's listening to this conversation is the respect and admiration that I have for you today is enormous. The courage, the determination, the resilience, the guts, the energy, the effort to get up every day, no matter what you're doing in life, and to put on the mask and the Superman or Superwoman cape and go out into the world and participate and do all of those things while at the same time living with these conditions is incredible. The second thing that I would say, if nothing else, Don't make the mistakes that I made any longer than I did. If you haven't asked for help, ask for help because your health, your well-being and your happiness is dependent on it. The opinions of other people are not yours and you can't control them. And if people want to judge you differently and negatively, so be it. But you'll have the ultimate decision. Do I tolerate that and accept it or do I make a tough decision to go in a different direction? And I've done that and you can do that too. What do you want your legacy to be? that my kids are proud of their dad. And then more broadly, I just hope that I've been able to play a small role in giving the voiceless a voice, honouring the lives of the people that have tragically taken their lives and changing the attitudes and perceptions around mental health and emotional wellbeing. And in 60 years' time, if we've been a part of bringing mental health and emotional well-being into mainstream conversations which reduce the number of suicides, which reduce the number of people attempting to take their lives, which increase the number of people getting help earlier. I hope that's my legacy. 
What is a life of greatness to you? Try to have a positive impact in the lives of other people and some of those people you may never know. Wayne Swass, you're a beautiful soul. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.